0: All right, I got it, I got it. Mm-hmm over here, yeah. Okay. Well, this week we studied the first of five lessons in our mountain study by Kat Armstrong. So I think she brilliantly laid out the significance of mountains throughout Scripture. Um, we have Mount Eden, which is God's original dwelling place for mankind, Mount Sinai where God um, met with Moses to give the law of God to his people, the Mount of the Sermon, or what we are more familiar with, the Sermon on the Mount, the location of the Sermon on the Mount, where Jesus delivers the first of five very important messages in the book of Matthew, where he connects the fulfillment of the law with the message of the gospel. And then there's the Mount of Transfiguration, where Jesus took Peter, John, and James to a high mountain, and they witnessed his transfiguration, his conversation with Moses and Elijah, and heard God's voice from heaven declaring Jesus' identity as God's son, just as he did at Jesus' baptism. And then there's the Mount of the Great Commission. In Galilee, where Jesus instructs his disciples to go and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything he commanded them. And he reminded them, I am with you always, to the very end of the age. Each of these mountains is significant for a specific reason. And throughout scripture, mountains are where God has chosen to meet with his people. Well, this weekend, my husband Todd and I were in June Lake, California, with our daughter and son-in-law and our son. And we went for uh, our nephew's wedding. And guess where it was? On a mountain, (laughs) which was so cool. Anyway, I don't know if any of you have spent much time in California, But that's where I was born and raised, and yes, I'm a little weird, but that's okay. Um, My nephew, who is 32 years old, his name is Michael. He works as an investment banker, but he is a true outdoorsman. He and his now wife, McKenna, they love to hike and fish and camp and ski. He's one lucky guy, let me just tell you, to have a wife like that. But anyway, one of their favorite places is June Lake. And it's kind of difficult to get to. We flew into Reno, Nevada, we rented a car, we drove three and a half to four hours south. And when our GPS indicated that we were getting close, we came around this curve. And this is what we saw. Is that not magnificent? I mean, I in all of my years growing up in California, I had never been to June Lake. I had never seen this. And there it was. And there is nothing doctored about that photo. That is it. That's what we saw. So here we are, and we, we just roll down our windows, and we're looking out. And then, of course, we got our wits about us, and we pull out our phones, and we're starting to take all these pictures. But it is nestled, this little town of June Lake is nestled in the Sierra Nevada. It is also known as the Switzerland of California. So as you can see why. Um, Anyway, so there's still a little snow on the mountain, a lot of snow on the mountains. Um, This beautiful lake, there's another lake on the other side of this smaller mountain range. And the town is nestled just inside there. Um, So on Saturday morning or afternoon, I mean, we got all dressed up, sort of. I had to wear cowboy boots. And we took a chairlift to the top of this mountain, to the actual wedding site. And that, if you look to the right, you see the big mountain. And just to the left, there's a lower part of the mountain. Yeah, that's where the wedding was. Okay, so... It was cold um, and rainy, but in spite of all that, it did occur to me that this was a covenantal moment. Here we were, I'm hopefully not going to cry, here we were standing on this mountaintop, and this intersection between heaven and earth was holy ground. The Spirit of God came to meet his people, and bless the covenant Michael and McKenna were entering into before their family and friends and in the presence of God. This beautiful mountaintop setting served as God's holy temple. I think at that moment, my goosebumps from the cold and the rain actually had goosebumps. (laughs) But because of God's beauty and majesty in that moment, Yes, it rained, but no one cared. No one really cared. And I think that's what God wants us to see, not just in creation, but in ourselves. The image of God, his handiwork, or imago Dei. You see, identity is very important to God, and your identity matters. And it matters for Jesus, too. Before Jesus even began his ministry, he came to be baptized by John the Baptist. As Jesus came out of the water, he and those standing there heard a loud voice from heaven say, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Think about that. Before Jesus performed any miracles or, be, or began his ministry, he and Everyone who was present heard God's voice proclaiming Jesus' identity as his beloved Son. Jesus' identity is important. It was important then and it's important now, just as our identity is important. So tonight, we're going to look at three aspects of your identity in God. Number one, you are created. Number two, you are forgiven. And number three, you are God's dwelling place. So let's start with being created. You are created in the image of God. Therefore, you too have an identity that was established long before you were born. You are one of a kind. Out of all the billions of people walking on the face of the earth at this moment, there is not one other person like you. That is mind-blowing. It's like that emoji. (laughs) You have a complex circuitry and multiple extraordinarily complex systems working in conjunction with one another inside your body, just inside you. I mean, that's incredible. They work, they each have a different purpose, but they work together for the good of your whole body. Your hair color, eye color, your height, the tone of your skin, the shape of your ears, and you know, there's some weird shaped ears out there. Your expressions, your mannerisms, the sound of your voice, the family you were born into, the community in which you live, all were designed and ordained by God. David says in Psalm 139, 13, For you created my inmost being. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Your works are wonderful. I know that full well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was woven together, or when I was made in the secret place, when I was woven together in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed body. All the days were ordained for, that were ordained for me were written in your book before one of them came to be. God's beauty in his creation is most perfectly demonstrated in you. He calls you the pinnacle of his creation, his image bearers. As one who has stepped out in faith to follow Jesus, you are adopted into God's family. And from that point on, you have a new identity. You are a child of God and nothing will ever separate you from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. As children of God who live in this world, we have many identifying factors, our physical appearance, our family of origin, our fingerprints, our job, our community. These are characteristics that the world uses to um, identify us, to define us, if you will. But as humans, we are always tempted to let the world define us. I think we all struggle with our identity from one time to another. Um, I sometimes place too much importance on what I wear, or other people's approval of me, or whether my makeup is okay because I can't see very well anymore to put it on. And I can't believe I'm saying this. Um, Whiskers, yeah. (laughs) I have whiskers. I told my daughter Lauren, when I get to the point where I can't see them well enough to pluck them out, that's on you. And you are in charge. I better not feel any. Like, you know, and you're looking in the mirror. Yeah, I better not see or feel any whiskers. I don't care how much it hurts. Pluck them out. Get rid of them. I don't want them there. So I was talking to Beth. Where's Beth Cobus? Where is she? There. Beth and I were having a conversation a few weeks ago. And um, she said, I wish someone would have told me when I was 26 that I wasn't going to look this good forever. (laughs) I mean, you don't think about wrinkles, gray hair, saggy skin, or whiskers when you're 26. Y'all right there, you just hold on to that thought. And where's the other table of young'uns that we have? Somewhere over here. Yeah, you just hold on to that. I got news for you. Don't base your identity on how you look, because that will change. All that cuteness, which I love, I love these girls, that does not last forever. But the truest part of your identity, the truest part now and in 50 years, is so much deeper than the wrinkles, the gray hair, the saggy skin, and even whiskers, if you have any. (laughs) For you, it might be your job title or how much money you make or any number of things. The world offers lots of choices on which to place our identity, but most of them but, but all of them basically begin with the premise that what God is telling us in the word about our identity is not the whole truth. Just like in the garden, the enemy wants us to doubt what God says. And that way of thinking causes us to doubt who we are and what our purpose is. It can lead to uncertainty and even shame. We can begin to think we're not good enough or worthy enough for God to ever love us, let alone anyone else. Is there something or someone to whom you give a higher priority than God? Are you looking to something or someone else to feed your identity? These are shallow, faulty messages from the world that the enemy uses to draw us away from God the God of the universe, our creator, offers a much more intimate and eternal source of identity. His word says we were created in his image with a purpose and for his glory. Ephesians 2, 8 through 10 says, For it is by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not from yourselves, it is the gift from God. Not by work, so that anyone can boast. For we are God's handiwork. Handiwork means we were made by hand, by God, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. So, yes, all those other factors in our identity, we get, we see they're part of us. But that is not who we truly are. The second aspect of your identity that we're talking about tonight is you are forgiven. Ephesians 1.7 says, In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins in accordance with the riches of God's grace that he lavished on us. That means that the unending tab on our debt receipt has been paid. Past, present, and future. It means that because we are broken and sinful and in no way capable of paying our own debt or ceasing to sin at all, God, in his great mercy and unimaginable love for us, gave his one and only son, the one who was sinless to pay the price for our sin. Jesus, the sinless son of God, died for us. That is beyond our human comprehension. So what does that mean? It means when God looks at our debt receipt, what he sees is paid in full. Amen? Amen. 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 Now and forevermore, he doesn't hold it over our head But we now have 24-7 access to God, the one who knows us better than anyone else in the universe. Because of Jesus Christ's death, the door has been opened to heaven for all who will believe in him. We are his. We belong to him. We have been purchased by his blood. That is our number one identity, and nothing will ever change that. Now the enemy does not want you to believe that. In fact, he, doesn't, he does everything he can to dissuade you from believing that and trusting in God. In researching for this talk, I came across a book titled Defined by um, Alex and Stephen Kendrick. And they say this of the enemy. You can be sure of this. He will always be pushing the identity button You, forgiven, holy, blameless? You think God looks at you and sees holy and blameless after what you've done or where you've been? I'm here to tell you, do not listen to that. Don't believe any of it. That's not what Christ died for. It's not what he wants for your life because if you're walking around feeling ashamed and unworthy, cast out, then you're falling into the enemy's trap. Please don't go there. Talk to someone you trust who can help you see God's deep affection for you. Don't give the enemy that power over you or your life because your life means nothing to him, but it means everything to God. The enemy knows that in the end, he's got nothing, nothing. Jesus already conquered sin and death through his own death. And let this be an encouragement to you. God's story is full of people who've sinned. And yet he still loved them. And he still loves you. He wants to use you and your story for his glory and his kingdom purpose. He wants you to be part of his story. And the third thing about identity that we're going to talk about is you are God's dwelling place. Wow. I'm going to say that again. You are God's dwelling place. So let's go back. After God led the Israelites out of Egypt, he instructed Moses to build a portable tabernacle the tent of meeting, a holy place where he could meet with his people throughout their journey. The God of the universe desired to be with his chosen people. Exodus forty thirty eight, The cloud of the Lord was over the tabernacle by day, and the fire was in the cloud by night in the sight of all the Israelites during their travels. That portable tabernacle eventually gave way to a more permanent structure where God's people came to meet with him and to worship him. Both were considered a holy dwelling, not because of the high quality of materials used, but because of the presence of God. And the next glimpse we have is a different kind of temple, And it's found in Luke 1, 35 through 38, when the angel of the Lord visits Mary. And he tells her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Mary would not only be the dwelling place of Jesus, the Son of God, but she would also foreshadow the future dwelling place of the Spirit of God for all those who believe. When we profess our faith in Jesus, the spirit of God comes to settle within us. It's like a big warm hug by a cozy fire. Just the thought of that sort of paralyzes me for a time because it is just too much for me to comprehend that the God of the universe would desire that kind of a relationship with me so I quote Alex and Stephen Kendrick again when they write, The omnipresent one whose house is the entire universe, who resides in the heavenly places beyond human imagination, has chosen to, cause, to call you one of his cherished homes on earth. How does that make you feel? Isn't that just, does that grab you? I don't know, it does something to me deep inside. Paul tells us in Ephesians 3, 7, Christ will make his home in your hearts as you trust in him. The Holy Spirit of God who dwells in each believer guides you in all things according to the will of God. He is with you, he will be with you, and one day you will be with him in his future kingdom. So the mountaintop wedding in California was a beautiful reminder of God's faithfulness. The weather wasn't what you had would hope for for a wedding day. I mean, like I said, it rained, it hailed, it was cold, the wind was cold, and we were all <laughs> the sweet mother of the bride bought little plastic tarps for all the guests. You know this and there's a picture someone took of us. I should have brought it because you would have laughed, but um, I didn't. But anyway, if you can just picture 120 people on the top of this mountain, all with these plastic <laughs> tents on us, trying to stay warm and, and all of that. But um, it was filled. Nobody cared. We were all smiling and praising God, and we were all such, um, so joyful for this beautiful couple who wanted to get married outside in their favorite place, this beautiful cathedral of creation. So the day after the wedding, Todd and I went for a hike around a nearby lake. And we saw amazing things, amazing things, which you don't see driving down 121. (laughs) We saw deer. We saw these really weird-shaped dead twisted tree trunks that were the most amazing things I've ever seen. We saw a waterfall. We saw um, a trail just going right through this grove of aspen trees. They are now my favorite type of tree. They're gorgeous. Pine trees everywhere and the smell was just, oh my goodness, it was so refreshing. And at one point, I just stopped to take it all in, and it sounds corny, but I saw God's fingerprints everywhere. There in creation, God's fingerprints are all over creation, and they're all over you. He is the one who made you. He has given you the most important identity you can have. We may have a lot of things that tell others a lot about us, But our ultimate identity comes from God. We were created by a God who loves us and pursues us. And when we accept Jesus as our beloved Savior, then we become a child of God. There is no fuller, deeper, richer, more profound identity than that. So what would it look like for you to rest in that concept? in that truth that you belong to God.